Welcome to Bipolar Inquiry, drafting and crafting bipolar consciousness since 2016 by philosophizing, relanguaging, and harvesting mania's special messages, meaning visions, extraordinary experiences, ideas, insights, superpowers, possibilities, synchronicity, and parallel worlds. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information discussed on the show is not medical advice. Now, let's get started with this episode. There's five days left until I leave for California. I'm feeling like it's kind of like bipolar meets world. And I'm hoping to go for quite a few months. And when I get back, I was thinking that maybe I'll continue to wander a little bit. I'm not sure. When I get back, I want to bring ECPR here and I also want to continue with a low-stress lifestyle in order to maybe come off my medications, I don't know. And perhaps with the help of EMP or Q96, which is pretty much the same product, just called different names. And I got an email from the True Hope people today and they make that product. And there was a study done on their product and I didn't read the study but I read the abstract and it said that at 15 months of taking EMP as well as medication for psychosis people that took the EMP as well as the medication got to reduce their meds a bit and also experienced less symptoms and there wasn't really a difference until the 15 month point. And then there was even more of a difference and a benefit at 24 months. And I don't know how much they were taking and what medication they were taking and blah, 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 but I've only been taking this EMP one a day for a month and a half. So I have a ways to go before it has an effect at least with the protocol they used that I don't know. But I do know somebody who sells Q96 and they emailed me yesterday and I had emailed them a while ago but they finally got back to me yesterday and I could have called them today but I didn't. So maybe I will tomorrow and have a conversation because they might know a little bit about using it to come off lithium. And they did mention that usually a person has to come off lithium very quickly when taking higher doses of EMP. So that's not something I'll do right now because I'm leaving in five days. But when I get back, it's definitely one of my goals. And I had a crisis recently while taking lithium, so trying to come off of it, maybe I'll have a crisis, but I have I have them anyway while taking it, so maybe it's not really benefiting me anymore. I don't know. We'll see. But for now, today, I've picked up my lithium for my trip. It's a lot of lithium. And I was thinking about 
if I'm able to come off lithium one day. It would be a fun little ritual to go up to Halcyon Springs, which is a lithium spring. It has a high level of lithium. And dump the little capsules. Open them up and then just dump them into the spring because wouldn't want to waste the lithium. And it'd be kind of fun to just give it back to the earth where it belongs and absorb it in proper doses by sitting in the spring. And so today I was doing some packing, pretty much just throwing stuff in a corner and I have to decide what to take. And I'm trying to decide which pair of rollerblades to take with me. I could take with me my my hypnoskates. They're a little bit heavier, but they have this fancy thing where you can take the blade off. I won't take it off, but you can actually take off the wheels and then walk around. And considering that I'm not driving, these might be handy to have to actually skate around and maybe pick up something to eat and be able to do that very conveniently. Or I could take my kind of stylish K2 skates. They have some really good bearings in them, some pretty good wheels. So I have to think about that. The hypno skates are also easier to pack because I can take the wheels off and then squash them in my bag a lot easier. And if I was driving down, I would take my mini trampoline and jump on the trampoline on the beach. But I'm not. And I really feel like I have to mentally prepare for this change because I won't be working in mental health. Maybe I'll be talking about something totally different in my videos. I won't be connected with my community, I won't be connected with my family, and I feel a little bit afraid, but I also have this feeling that once I get there and see the sun and the beach and get settled that I'll feel perfectly fine. And so I have five more days and I feel like I need around a day total for packing and moving stuff around in my place in case it gets rented out. And tomorrow I'm going to go spend time at the clubhouse, hopefully all day, see people. I really feel like I miss people right now. I don't really like being alone. And I want to spend a day with my family, so that's two days. Probably a full day for just last minute stuff. And then I have two more days of time. Today I did a bunch of laundry, I got a few things from the grocery store, and 
got a coffee from Tim Hortons so I could roll up the rim, but I didn't win. And I need one more sticker for my McDonald's coffee card. And I saw a McDonald's cup on the road when I was driving. And I thought it was funny because if I would have pulled over, there was probably a sticker on it, but I didn't. Because it was sort of in the middle of the road and that would have been really weird. But I thought, there it is, there's my sticker. And I have to decide if I'm gonna bring things like my hair dryer and my hair straightener, or if I'm gonna go curly while I'm down there, and if I'm gonna bring my vitamins or just buy them when I'm down there. I think I'm gonna go for packing lighter. And I've been writing in this notebook, but I've been writing stuff and I feel weird about crossing the border with it. So I'm gonna bring a blank notebook and hopefully I remember to go back to this notebook when I get home. Or maybe it won't matter by then. I feel sort of like with my forgetfulness being away for an extended period of time, I'll come back and I'll just forget everything. And maybe I'll feel kind of lost and and that could be a good thing. I was thinking about how it would be really cool to, when I do get a place to live, make part of it a peer center of some kind. Because I have a lot of different things and stuff and I kind of want to share them. So it would be cool to make it a library with different resources and other things where people can come and that way it's like starting a little community or something because I've also thought about living with roommates or I'm not sure what to do because the trouble is I'm vegetarian and I don't like the smell of cooking meat all the time and so I am a little bit picky those ways and so it might be difficult to have something like that but and then I do want to work on the peer respite or the dream center stuff I just feel like I'm gonna forget everything but I guess that's what's cool about talking about stuff on video is that I've talked about it with myself already Maybe this next phase or this next bit is about looking for that which I've talked about instead of sitting here talking about it, living it out. And I really hope I can trust that. Because right now I have this comfy little place and I don't like noise. But technically I could move my comfy little place to another comfy little place and continue to be comfy. I guess I worry that when I come back I'll just create this comfy little place again and I looked over at the clock and next week at this time exactly, 5.55 on Thursday evening next week, I'll be in California getting off the train at my stop.
And when I step off the train, life is going to be totally different. And that place is definitely a higher energy level, so I think I'll automatically be at this higher resonance. And here's the abstract that paper I was talking about. Adjunctive treatment of psychotic disorders with micronutrients. I typed up a document of alternatives and options talking about safety and respite and groups and different things and I hope to work towards creating some of that when I get back. But maybe I won't even feel like I resonate with mental health anymore, I'm not sure. And when I go to California, I hope I don't have so much mental health on the brain. I hope that I can release that and just, just be. And I wonder if I'll get a chance to have conversations with myself or if I'll be having enough conversations with others. And also I don't know if I'll have to make audio instead of video because I don't know what the Wi-Fi is like down there. I have pretty fast Wi-Fi for uploading these and transferring them and things like that. So we'll see what it is that I can do when I'm down there. Might have to make shorter videos and longer audios or just shorter videos. I'm not sure. I was making more notes after my last video, so maybe I'll talk a little bit about them. I was talking about how when the brain switches to perception mode instead of remembering mode, thought mode, it's running on light. Light is the fuel and light is the nutrition as opposed to sound, old sounds, which is old brain cells vibrating and resonating together. And when the brain cells run on light, new light, then the brain cells grow and then they produce new sound. And the new sound is in order to share that light with others or make it so others might be able to see that too or see that way too or see not really see that per se but just see for themselves because once the seeing for oneself process begins it never ends and then a person doesn't need self-help books and all that because one can see and the ego is a soundscape of brain degeneration, mainly because it's stuck in old sound, so it's not growing with the new light that's coming in to be perceived. I feel like when we are in touch with perception, we speak as the brain and as perception, instead of 
as ego thought and all the games of all those sounds that we've been programmed with. And I'm wondering what sounds can be created so that other people can create their own sounds, new sounds, the sound of seeing. And in that way, seeing and listening are the same thing. They're both frequency and vibration. So we see light and it's faster. So it's like this flash of insight. And then it takes a little bit of time for the words to form. Kind of like when we see lightning and then we have to wait a little bit for the thunder. And the thunder is just not one loud boom. It's usually some crackles and it's sort of unfolding. It's almost like a sentence. It's not just one letter. So it's the mimetics of light. Light produces sound when we see. It's visual mimetics. And I was thinking about how if we produce healthy sound based on perception, instead of having these old stale sounds in our head, and if we produce healthy light, as in the light coming out of our eye, which is clear, which is not judging, but open and receiving, which it needs to be in order to actually produce these sounds, just like lightning. The light hits our eyes and then the words form like thunder. And then we can roll them out. And we don't have access to this world of light, this insight, if we have these old stale sounds in our mind because the light coming in wants to produce new sound, but if it's clogged up with old sound, there's no space for this new sound to arise. We're so busy recombining old abstractions that we don't have space for the new sound. And it's sort of an epi-perception. It's perceiving, whereas perceiving through the ego is sort of like endo-perception because we're perceiving just what's percolating inside. And I've often wondered if there were less human beings on the planet and the earth started restoring itself, how would the animals come back? The ones that are extinct. And it came to me that we're actually consciousness around which matter organizes itself. So the consciousness of those beings, of those creatures, is still around. But there's no environment for them to live. It was destroyed. So then they can't actually come back. But if the environment was such that they could, they would likely rematerialize and be there. I don't know if that's true, but it gave me some hope that that could be possible because... I imagine that one day the earth will regenerate and how will those animals come back because the animals are needed just as much as the environment and consciousness organizes matter and it gestures matter and it moves matter and I was pondering about if consciousness each 
organism has a certain amount of consciousness, whether it's a fly or a human. And a human consciousness comes with a certain amount of matter. So we all share the same amount of matter each, but it could be additive. And so when one person passes on, that consciousness goes on to the next. So that matter is never destroyed, as in physics. But now that there's way too many humans on the planet, the consciousness has weakened in a way, and it's not taking hold in the brains the same way because of that. And then if a person is born, say, autistic, it's almost like they come with less matter because they're going to be moving less in the world. They, they live in this very narrow sphere of physical reality because of their limited ability, supposedly, apparently to us, to, to function. So in a way, they almost have less matter. This is not scientific at all. And the thing too is that as less consciousness is in the other elements or other creatures of the Gaia sphere and more of it goes to humans, it narrows that too because of the fact that the diversity is lessening. So there's not the proper balance. So human consciousness is not taking hold because it's actually there's just way too many of us. And so they experience less of this world of matter because of their inability to communicate. And they can't communicate because they don't have the same level of consciousness embodied. And consciousness is communication. And we're not in communication with Gaia, we're just mainly in communication with our own thought games. And in terms of the non-judgment, can we look with equal light at equal light? We all have the same light in our eyes. And I was also thinking about how the brain is a mirror. And so what do we want to see in that mirror? And so if we're being altruistic, we're activating our mirror neurons and we're seeing that in the mirror of our brain. And that could be why that's one of the fastest ways to be happy is to do something for other people. I feel pretty tired today and I don't think I even really feel like making a video, but I don't have much else to do. There's other stuff I could do. I noticed I wrote quite a bit and if I do one more video I might be able to catch up on it because at a certain point in the next couple of days I won't want to make videos because I want to catch up on all the processing and just go on my trip and then who knows what I will be doing in terms of videos then I finished off my big bag of Costco rice today so technically I have no more dinner food for the next five days. So I'm not sure what I'll do. Maybe go out for dinner some of the nights or 
just eat whatever day by day. Not very interesting. I was thinking about the Rat Park study, and I don't know all the details, but from what I recall, they did a study where they made this magical wonderland for rats, and then this other land for rats where it was overcrowded and didn't have any running wheels, didn't have all the things that rats need. And the other one, it was lots of space, not overcrowded with rats, had nice food. And when the rats were living in the area that was overcrowded and they didn't like, they chose to have a hit of some kind of narcotic. Whereas when they were in the big open area and everything was lovely and perfectly designed for them, they never went for the drugs, they just ate the food. Whereas in the other undesirable conditions, they took the hit of the drug and didn't eat food. Something like that. And I think it'd be interesting to design a study called Mad Park, where it's like this beautiful island and it's everything a person could want or desire and take a bunch of people that are supposedly mentally ill and put them in this beautiful space for humans where they don't have to worry about anything and there's no stress and see if they get better. Just a thought. And there's another very classic study I can't remember what university they did it at, but they made some students be prisoners just for pretend. They set up a jail. I think it was maybe like a fake jail, but it looked like jail prison. And some of the students were assigned to play the role of prisoners and some were assigned to play the role of prison guard. And they were stuck in this situation for a certain period of time. And after a while, they actually started playing those roles for real. The students dressed as guards actually started being rude to the prisoners and, and the prisoners started acting like prisoners. And what I was thinking with that one is how when we go into the clinical eye of psychiatrists, either in the hospital or to their office, we begin to play the role of mental patient, even if in our daily lives we're not really that identified with it. So by putting ourselves more and more in the clinical eye, we actually morph into playing that role more so and actually posturing it and gesturing it and talking in that way. And I'm not saying that can be completely avoided. But in my recent crisis, being able to avoid the medical eye, the clinical eye, I was able to avoid talking about the things I was experiencing to a doctor. So it might be one thing to talk about the things I experienced to myself or to a friend later on, or even a clinician later on, maybe. But it's another to have to talk about it when it's actually happening to professional like that because then it gets warped into 
the perception of mental illness and by avoiding that I was able to avoid having that measured out so what I'm trying to say is there's a lot of talk around talk about your mental illness and all that but I almost feel like if some of us are able to get strong enough to go through crisis by ourselves and I'm not recommending this I'm just saying that I was able to it goes sort of against the whole oh go for help and talk about it and all that but it avoids me putting myself in the position where I have to play that role and last time when I went to the psych ward I had to play that role and I was put on a medication that made me enact and play that role even better which was to my detriment because I was terrified and put on a treatment that made me worse and then that justifies me looking more and more like a mental patient which makes it harder to get out of the situation and recover and then the recovery is recovering from that from being under the lens of a pathologizing eye so what I've learned is just lay down surrender and go through it don't talk about it. I was around my family. I didn't tell them that I was in absolute hell for t two days, which seemed like longer. They brought me something to drink, and I just went, rolled over and went back to sleep. They didn't have to know what I was going through. Now, that takes practice, and that takes time to understand how to go about that. But once I got to a point where I, I could do the thing they do to me in the psych ward but by myself now I can just do it by myself and then I don't have to go talk about it which is helpful because sometimes get in the psych ward you have to really share a lot of stuff and then you have to share stuff about the stuff and then you have to get mad that they're not listening to the stuff you're saying and then that justifies getting in so it it amplifies it even more and then that's noted and then all of that justifies even further harsher treatment whereas if I didn't have to go through that amplifying process in order to get help then maybe it's just not as big and I can go through it myself and again I'm not recommending this unless it's very very carefully planned and takes time to know what works and what doesn't work and how to keep oneself safe and I have that zap strap where I can fasten myself. I know where to fasten myself when I'm, I'm at home. And when I was with my family, I looked for a place that I could fasten myself if I needed to. I just looked around and I saw, oh, I can just fasten myself to that doorknob and I'm not gonna be going anywhere if I get frightened to the point where my body and my mind are are incongruent in that way so what I'm trying to say is when we encounter the role of psychiatrist we play the role of that which we're supposed to play in that situation and even if we try to not play that role that could even be construed as a symptom of our illness like a personality disorder if one time we go in and we're upset about something and the next time we go in and we feel fine 
and we feel like ourselves, but that ourself might actually be interpreted as something wrong. So there's no escaping it, really. Unless we can get to the point where we can go through a severe inner storm and just just take it, just surrender to it and just lay down and just don't move and just wait it out no matter what happens. Because if we walk around and start talking about stuff, then we get labeled with more stuff. Because it is temporary and it can be a very short duration, but it can be dragged out longer if we're in the eye of somebody who has the power to drag it out by continually talking to us about it and then putting us on this med and then that med and then spiral and then the med makes it worse and the med makes it go on forever. So one of the ways to help with this whole recovery journey as it's called is to not just recover but to also along the way really pay attention to ways that we can help ourselves get to the point where we don't need that type of crisis intervention because a lot of times it can make it worse before it makes it better. And if we find something that works in that crisis, in particular some kind of PTSD, flashback, psychosis or dissociation, then we can perhaps help ourselves through it. And that takes a lot of strength. So they say, oh, it takes strength to get help. But if we get help, we get help, we get help to the point where now we know how to help ourselves, we're strong enough to help ourselves, And then we don't have to go through that extra stuff. And then at a certain point, it's like, how much of a mental illness do we really have if, you know, two days a year we have to take PRNs to go through some kind of inner storm? And imagine if we started to play the role of mystic or something else. Maybe peer is a language and not peers based on mental illness but just having access to this trans dimension that we all share. It's a language we all share. And it's the language of vision. And we all have very similar eyes. We can all see. It's all the same light. So if we're looking without distortion we should be able to give voice to this particular language of light and how you speak is the role you play so if we're continually speaking as mental patients we're going to be playing the role of mental patient but if we speak in terms of what else could it be if we give voice to that then maybe we're more like philosophers maybe like peer philosophers of some kind sharing and wondering about the wisdom of our experiences and perceptions and not holding on to them too tightly, just moving on. Whereas the stigma story, the mental illness story, they want us to hold on to that so tight that we never forget and we always believe it. And I'm not saying disidentify from that completely. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying that we can make space for other perceptions. And I feel it, it's possible, in my experience, that over the years, over the six years, I've gotten better at 
being able to give voice to some of this because in the very beginning it was mostly nonsensical. And that's because the language of the ego is still mixed in with the language of perception and the language of the past. And that soundscape still comes up in consciousness sometimes. And then I just wait for the energy of that to pass. We can speak about philosophies of crazy. We need to share our philosophies from our perspective and how we see it not just our story framed on how we've been told to see it. And I was thinking about this whole light as nutrition for the brain and it also in a way becomes our driver. It becomes what drives us. The light in our perceptions are what drive us and, and lead to gestures and actions. Seeing leads to the gesture and this is instead of having sound, old soundscapes as our driver. So we need to have this as our second language. We may still need to speak to clinicians how they want us to speak to them, but we can still develop this capacity to think and speak about ourselves and the world the way that we would like to. And I feel like we need to have more conversations with each other about the mistreatment that happens in the inpatient unit. We could almost have a more harm than good speaker series. And we could start talking with each other over Zoom. It's a pretty good app. And I feel like we're actualizing that we're sensitive to more than just ourselves and we're super sensitive and that can drive us crazy and that's actually what builds up the allostatic load faster the stress the accumulation of stress i've shared my story in the past with different groups and one of the things i talk about is grieving the loss of one's former self and it took me several months to do that and then i got involved with lots of different stuff and went on the journey of rediscovery and recreating myself. I like to say rediscovery and recreation as opposed to recovery because recovery sounds like recovering over the problem and then pretending everything's okay and then going on. That's something that medication does. It's good for recovery. But anyway, I feel like by talking about ourselves and thinking about ourselves in different ways, it will help us grieve the loss of our former selves more easily. I was able to grieve the loss of my former self and luckily I was immersed in a community and having fun so I didn't hold on to that as much but I feel a lot of people never finish grieving the loss of their former self because of how they really buy into the stigma story and and maybe their body changes from taking medication and they have really bad side effects so how can one really complete the grieving process when one is suffering so much and luckily I didn't have a lot of side effects I had quite a bit of weight gain which I slowly lost over time but again it was the relationships in the community that 
was so much fun that I didn't that I didn't miss my old life. But what I'm trying to say is when we start to reframe how we think and look at ourselves, maybe we can grieve the loss of our former self a little bit less because we can see that there's this new self coming into being. And believing that stigma story is preventing that new self from coming into being because if we're so focused on that, we're not going to have space for the new perceptions to arise in consciousness and move us forward. And a lot of people are isolated, so then, again, it's difficult to grieve the loss of one's former self. And we're never really told that there is an extreme period of grief. And a lot of that grief is due to what is piled on us through the process and through being indoctrinated into this whole paradigm. But as we can expand our dialogue with ourself, that paradigm, it takes up a smaller percentage in our consciousness. I feel more of us have to be peer perspectivists, so even if we're not peer support workers or peer specialists or peer coordinators or any other kind of peer, we can still be perspectivists, we can still share a perspective, we can still stand up and speak up about things that we see that even small things that need to be changed. And if more and more of us say these things, then it will change things over time because the system doesn't even necessarily listen to peer support workers and collaborate with them. So we need more of these memes, we need more people sharing these things in order to have that soundscape out there. We need a soundscape of peers saying what they see. And not only from the perspective of being mad at the system, but also to try to help the system so the system can help people better. And I don't even think it needs to help people that much better, just get rid of some of the things that make things worse and don't help. The paternalism, the, the rude treatment, the dirty looks, the, the fact that so much of it isn't trauma-informed. And I listened to another talk by Ricardo Semler and he said, I don't know where I'm going in his management style. He said they don't really have plans beyond six months. And he said, fit this into how you see the world and do what you think you need to do in a way you'd like to do it. And that's sort of how he manages people. And I was thinking about that in terms of my trip. I'm sort of doing what I think I need to do in the way I want to do it. And it's a good quote for life. And another thing he said, he was talking about how they don't give any how-tos and they don't distribute any material that could be used as how-tos as part of his Semco style of 
companies and management. And he's written two books, but I'm guessing they're sort of story format and they're not step one, do this, step two, do this. And he said something really funny. He said, we don't give out any information in any format that could be useful to anyone. And I was thinking about that in terms of how in a previous video I was talking about making summary videos with the key points. And in a way that would be like trying to make something useful for somebody. And this whole time I've just been talking and it's not really to be useful. It's just talking. And so when I heard him say that, and I like his style, I thought to myself, maybe I won't make a summary video because that would be, in a way, an attempt to make something more condensed and useful. And all of this talking is pretty much useless. There's no how-tos, and I've talked about that before, that I'm not saying this is how to do anything. And I was also saying I find it difficult to put things into some kind of structure of some sort and partly that's because of my memory I just forget and this makes it easy to remember that oh I just have one notebook and I make a couple notes in it and I open it up and I start talking and that's all I have to remember for the most part and the rest of my life is whatever I see in front of me and that's it so So yeah, maybe no summary videos, though I could watch or listen in order to extrapolate things, but maybe not. And I was also thinking that it would be good to go back because I sort of want to know what I said so I can do some of what I said. And another way would just be to share all these videos and then wait for people to tell me what I said if people ask so realize and remember things that I said through what people talk to me about because I'm assuming that I'll get a few conversations started maybe not many doesn't matter again this isn't about how to this isn't about useful stuff this is just about seeing and communicating with oneself in a different way. And he also said recently that he celebrated 10 years without making a single decision as part of the company. And I think that's really cool and I think if I share these videos maybe people might pick up on little bits and and that would just create some dialogue organically and then I don't have to decide what to do with the videos. Just the sharing will be the doing and tell me where to go with it. Stuff needs to be done. We each have a piece of the puzzle. Maybe there's some kind of peer puzzle. And what's your piece of the puzzle? What's your gift? And he also said, don't make a decision and a solution will come up that's not your solution alone. And again, a decision is thinking. It's sort of saying, should I do this or should I do that?
and when we're not doing that and the mind's quiet, something else arises in consciousness. And it's not the ego deciding. So it's similar to what I see with perception. And so I really like his his style and his principles. They're, they're really out there. And I think if we ever do have some kind of sharing as peers, it needs to be out there and organic like that. And oddly enough, I was on the Emerging Proud blog and at the bottom, somebody had written a blurb about teal organizations. And I only read about that in that document by Leading Wise. And then lo and behold, it was on the Emerging Proud blog. So it is definitely something, this whole concept of teal. I think it's something to do with spiral dynamics as well. And again, it's what is evolution or what is the world or the universe asking of us and it seems that the world is asking me to talk to myself on video because i am and i have about 170 videos varying in length from three minutes to an hour and 10 minutes. And it's just about planting seeds and, and these are seeds of consciousness. Words are seeds of consciousness. If they hit the clear mind and paint a picture or have some sort of impact or impression that creates the space to see that which the other is talking about. And he mentioned how business models, current business models are anachronistic, which means something like out of place in time. And I feel like the mental health system is anachronistic. And I feel like the more that we can dialogue in this way that is more congruent with how we see f and feel and experience things, then that anachronistic part will have less space in our lives. And it seems that I keep coming back to this light coming out of the eyes thing. And I wrote that the way we look at someone the light coming out of our eye is electrical nutrition. How we look at someone is what determines what we say. So what we project onto that person, how we look at them is what determines what we say to that person. So if a doctor's looking at somebody with pathology eyes, they're gonna say something to them in terms of pathologizing them or labeling them or speaking to them with that role. And that soundscape creates the soundscape of the other, so it creates the response of the other. So the light of our eyes and how we look determines the soundscape that we project and then that soundscape 
from the light of their eyes is what creates the soundscape of response or the action of response. But whoever it is who's looking at someone might not have to even say anything. The other person, if they're sensitive, can read that energy and it's probably from the aura as well as the light coming out of one's eyes. You think of holograms and if somebody's thinking something and, and projecting images of that person or judgments or measures and evaluations, it could be holographically coming out of their eyes, even in terms of an interference pattern. And the other person can actually see that and read that. Especially when a person is in crisis because they're very sensitive to things like energy. And this light in the eye phenomenon could also be how people will randomly come up to us and start talking to us about something or bring us a message. They can read that. And that could be something to do with synchronicity. It could be synchronize, synchronizing something about the eyes. And that's the thing, when a person is in that clear space, one can just look in the eyes and come up and give a message or give something based on the emptiness because when one's empty like that one can receive whether it's the light in someone else's eyes or they actually coming up and saying something or helping with something when I've it hasn't happened so much lately probably because of working in the mental health system but before I would often have experiences of people being extra kind and helpful and talking to me and, and things like that. And we highlight things with what we say. We, we create that as light with the sound images in our minds. Sound is creative. First there was the word. And sound creates matter by saying what's the matter. And we can speak lightness. Words can bring humor and lightness. And I do feel I need to get back to that humor space and maybe one day I'll have talked enough about this where I can just get back to that space of laughter and lightness. And I had an insight that the brain grows with new sound. And when we have all these old sounds spinning in our heads and there's no space in between them, it blocks new light from coming in and creating new sound. And that sound is blocking the new light. And whenever we have those moments where we actually see something beautiful and our mind is quiet, because the mind is quiet, we experience awe. Like, wow, that's so beautiful and we're speechless. But it doesn't happen very often because it's always talking about old stuff and old stuff is an awe. So I was thinking about how awe is actually just a concept. It's something we experience because most of the time we're just babbling on about old stuff. But if that babbling wasn't happening and we were always perceiving, there would be no awe. Awe is a product of a noisy, egoic mind just like the concept of flow. These concepts of these 
modes of consciousness that we're just barely able to get into and we make them into these huge things because we can rarely get into them. And the opposite is kind of true with what I'm talking about with managing one's own crisis, one's own psychosis, one's own PTSD flashbacks. It's super intense. And we make it into this big deal like mental illness and and this huge system around it when if we could manage that state and minimize it just like somebody might go into flow for two days and be like wow that was so great somebody can go into psychosis for two days and be like wow that was so bad and then just be done with it. They're just different states of consciousness that we spend less time in because we're usually in the ego mode of consciousness and then we turn these very powerful bad ones, supposedly bad, into this extreme system of hoopla and then there's people trying to get into flow on the other side which is the other side of the same coin. I see beauty all the time everywhere and it doesn't feel like awe because if you can see it's everywhere all the time it's not this one flash and then thinking how do I get that back the thought how do I get that back is what blinds us from seeing what's right there in front of us I'm parked at the park I've been feeling kind of emotional today because I'm leaving and the last three days I was hoping to see different people and different groups of people and things get cancelled because of weather or or somebody being sick or both and so I haven't been able to see the people that I was really hoping to see before I leave. And it almost feels like the universe is giving me a taste of having to detach from everyone before I even leave. So hopefully I get to see people at some point in the next four and a half days. but. We'll see, because not all the variables are within my control. Guess I'll go home and do stuff to get ready to go. I feel like I just want to be around people already. And I wanted to be around the people I know, but it's not working out. So I just want to go so I can be around people. Guess I'll probably make some videos when I get home. If I can't talk to people, then I'll just have to talk to myself. I just ate a few too many gummy frogs. 
but I think it gave me a bit of a boost because I felt really tired. But then I just kept eating gummy frogs and now I feel like I have a little bit more energy. I spoke with someone today who knows somebody who is in a worst case scenario situation when it comes to being medicated, being stuck in a long-term facility with no control over one's medications and being medicated and change medications and there's no way out. And I feel like that is something that could have happened to me if I didn't get out of my situation that I was in in the psych ward in April of last year. And I remember last year when I got out of the psych ward, I was talking to somebody who makes documentary films and I was thinking about making a documentary. And he was ready to get into it right away, but I was thinking that I wasn't quite ready because I wanted to be able to speak from the vantage point of being off medication, not just sharing my story about mental illness. And I'm still not off medication, so I'm still not there, but I was thinking it might be interesting to explore attempting to try and get this person out of this facility. At the same time exploring eCPR and creating a community that has that context of not pathologizing people first. And also my journey towards getting off psych meds. But I don't know. These videos might end up being a documentary of sorts. And it was a pretty powerful conversation. This person's also interested in, in respite centers or healing centers that have alternatives to all of this harsh medication and also helping people come off medication and I feel like these are conversations that we need to have as peers and realize that there are other options out there. Seeing what resonates and then starting to request or demand that other things be made available. And other avenues made available for people to come off meds if they don't want to be on them anymore. And not just taper off them quickly, which is often done and then it's not successful and then it's seen as a person needs their meds, but slowly, carefully, properly, with lots of other types of supports in place. And these are all really big topics and, and I'm just wondering if while I'm down in California I'll want to work on this stuff or if my attention will be diverted elsewhere for a while which could be good. I'm really not sure, but I do feel like I don't want to be put in the path of pathology again, so I have to keep myself out of that line of sight. And I'm wondering if I need to put this conversation with myself away for a while, while I'm away. Talk about something else.
talk about things with myself that I would talk about with myself if I had all the gifts of this transformative process without the detriments. And again, work on moving towards the gifts and not focusing on these negative aspects. And I feel like right now it's hard to breathe, like there's no oxygen in this place. Sometimes it smells so strongly of cooking meat and that grosses me out. So I turn on my diffuser with the essential oils, but then I'm like choking on essential oils. So it'll be nice to get some oxygen. And this person clued me into NAC or N-acetylcysteine as an antioxidant because they said that the brain actually has a higher oxidation rate in people with bipolar and other diagnoses. At least they're finding that out through research. And then NAC helps to mitigate some of that oxidation. And to me that makes sense because I feel like if people that are labeled are more perceptive, we're processing more information and more energy, and then that could cause more oxidative stress in the brain. So I feel like some of us have the potential to get locked up in long-term facilities because of this iatrogenic factor. And then it's very difficult to get out of that situation. And I was thinking about the term emergence because spiritual emergence is another way to describe psychosis or spiritual emergency. And I've heard before the word emotion be described as e-motion or energy in motion. So if we think about the word emerge in the same way, it's energy merging. And what is the energy merging with? And I think that the energy is actually merging with each other, with other people. And when that happens, we perceive as that oneness, as that wholeness, and we see that we are that mirror and whatever is there to be perceived in the moment is on that mirror. And that's how we can feel the situation so strongly. And we feel it as ourselves. Even if it's something that's happening in the situation or to others, we feel it as we would feel it in ourselves, and that's the empathy. And the reason I am talking about this is because I feel like we need to have a language of emergence. So if we're able to emerge or go through this process, we need to be able to speak in a way to allow that to take hold. What I'm trying to say is if we go through this transformation and we go through this spiritual emergence, but then we come back and we speak as our ego self or from the perspective of the ego, we're going to be reinforcing that as opposed to the fact that we're now speaking as the oneness. It's like we're separate bodies, of course, but we're the same mirror. And when our mirror is clear and we've emerged, 
we can all see the same thing in our mirror because we're not blocked and blinded by our own personal prejudices and ideas and ideologies and all the things that are programmed over our mirror, over our clean slate of perception. And when we speak egoically, we use language to divide ourselves. Whereas if we speak as Gaia, as oneness, because we can see more than just the situation of humanity, we can see the situation of the animals and the plants, so we can actually speak as Gaia. There's this Gaiac language once we've merged with the Gaia sphere, and we speak as that, and we feel as that, and we share as that, not from our own little vantage point that we used to have. Because I feel like it's possible that some of this emergence can happen. But a lot of the healing is directed towards reintegrating as an ego, as opposed to reintegrating or integrating as this Gaiac consciousness. And then one person might say, well, yeah, I'm spiritual and I'm spiritual and I'm spiritual, but we're still all seeing and acting separately. And I feel like when we merge, we see together and we can see the same thing at the same time. But that thing that we see is always changing as time and space unfolds. So if we have a spiritual emergence and then we sort of take that as what spirituality is, once we've healed and integrated again as this ego, then it prevents the further unfolding of what we're, we're designed to unfold together. And I don't know if that makes any sense, but I just feel like there's this together thing. And if we use the ego language again, we're using that me language and that's our own voice turned against us and that creates this sound barrier and when we have this sound barrier up of our little individual beliefs we can't see beyond that so what i'm trying to say is this spiritual emergence doesn't necessarily end per se we have to continue to let go of our perceptions and beliefs in order to remain clear to see the next thing because I could have a spiritual emergence and then spend the next 20 years talking about that experience but if I let it go and I've really merged and I can really see I'll always be talking about something new and different and the ego language divides us there's got to be a language that brings us together to gather I haven't really talked much about what I experienced in my last crisis when I was able to avoid the psych ward and I don't know if I'm supposed to talk about this but it was very strange this is probably the strangest thing I've ever experienced I wanted to listen to a song on my iPhone, so I did the swipe like that, 
and I searched for the song and I clicked on it and as the screen flipped over to go to the song there was a full screen width of some kind of writing and I wasn't sure it looked kind of like the matrix but then when I thought about it later or right after I don't even know it kind of looked like hieroglyphics and I have no idea what that means but I definitely saw it and I was thinking the other day about how I've shared that the very first time I went into that state I was laying there handcuffed to the balcony and I was making these bird sounds and my I could feel my mouth moving and I felt like I was a bird flying south though I also felt like I was laying there but I could feel this and I was thinking about how I don't know if it's in hieroglyphics or something else or just Egypt or I don't know enough about that stuff but I do know that they have that depiction of a human with a bird head and so I'm just wondering if that has some kind of significance symbolically and I also remember in the first experience of that state I felt like when we sleep at night our souls kind of go up into the birds and I could see all these birds flying around all the time and even going in apartment windows and I also felt like the world was upside down and I felt like there was another world on the other side of the Sun like you could go through the Sun to a different earth and those are just not really related things but this language that I saw on the iPhone was just weird and I'm on an email list for a guy named Michael Stone and he's a shaman and he said that one of the ways to create change is by changing the community listening field and he didn't go into it in the email but it made me think of my process of self-dialogue because I'm changing the listening field of my conversation with myself at least and to some extent those vibrations are going out into reality but they're also being recorded and shared potentially and that will make those vibrations extend and perhaps change the community listening field of peers even just a little bit and if I do share it I hope to become more interconnected with my peers and people who go through these sorts of experiences and for years and years I've been attempting to share but never quite getting there I'm, I remember 10 years ago I bought a laptop thinking that I'd be out and about and then actually creating something on the laptop but I didn't really do anything and then years later in mania I bought another mini laptop and I did use it but not really for sharing and then each time I get an iPhone I usually justify well I need the best one in case I want to share some kind of thing and then finally with this last iPhone this most recent one I'm finally living up to the amount I paid for it and 
the technology and my willingness and having something to say is all seemingly coming together at the same time. Because if I have the device, but I don't have anything to say, then it's useless, and that's what happened before. But also the technology wasn't necessarily good enough to make longer videos and then upload them and share them. Even YouTube only had 10 minute videos before, and now they accept longer videos. And I was actually thinking that when I get to California, it'd be interesting to speak more as Gaia, just be out in nature and speak as Gaia, because I've done a lot of speaking about the nature of my experiences in the mental health system, as well as some of the experiences I've had in altered states of consciousness. And, and the consequences of that. But what are the consequences of being out in nature, being somewhere pristine, having fresh air, being in touch with new people? And there's even apps now where one can share in real time, and I think just stream it and keep babbling and I'm wondering if one day I can have sort of a babblathon and just keep talking and talking and talking perhaps more as Gaia in nature as a way to unfold perceptions and, and kind of illustrate the newness of being able to see in this way just being able to talk unedited for long periods of time and even in these videos I mainly just edit out when I look at my notebook or cough or small bits usually I record say 40 minutes and I edit out 10 minutes so it's just mostly just talking and talking and editing out most of the gaps in respect of people's time I could just not edit them out if I wanted to, but one day perhaps I'll get to a point where I can just talk for 20 minutes straight unfolding something as opposed to talking about these little fragments of things. And a part of the point of that would be to show perhaps that somebody like me and other people like me too. We don't have diseased and dysfunctional brains. We're very perceptive and active brains that maybe want to talk about something else in life, about perceptions rather than what's on TV. But when we're medicated, then we end up watching TV. But our brains work in a different way and we see different things and we want to talk about different things and when that first gets activated we're talking nonsense but if we were able to have enough dialogue the nonsense would fall away and we would actually be quite articulate and eloquent speakers visionaries prophets mystics magicians 
and I was talking yesterday or something about the role that we play when we put ourselves in the lens of the doctor. Well, I'll be going a few months without putting myself in front of a doctor as long as nothing dramatic happens. And maybe when I come back, I won't even want to go back to see a doctor or a psychiatrist or have any of those types of supports. I'm not sure, but it would be nice if that were true. I want them to lose a customer. I want them to lose a consumer. And there are definitely lots of people out there who identify as consumer survivors, as psychiatric survivors. And I'm not yet in that dimension. I haven't transcended the system. And that's part of why I want to talk to myself through it, is to share some of that. Because the people that have done it, they're out there sharing and advocating and doing amazing work. And I want to be able to do that too. And Michael Stone talked about the myth of separation. Well, mania and psychosis are experiential ways of feeling that there is no separation and it is indeed a myth and mania is really sharing of a wave of energy and the more interconnected we can be to share those waves of energy the less it will get stuck in us and turned against us when those pockets of energy are made available to us and I don't know if these things are necessarily true but that's something I want to experiment with moving forward. I do sort of want to experiment with thinking of myself more as a mystic in a way. Not that I think I am, but if I, if I I don't actually think I can think of myself that way. It would be more speaking in such a way that others might recognize me as such, but I'll be totally oblivious. I'll be like, what are you talking about? And just whatever. I have no real concept of me as a mystic because that can't really coincide. I feel like I can think of myself more as a philosopher a lover of wisdom. The mystic part comes with interconnectedness. I don't think a person can be a mystic in isolation. For example, a person labeled and diagnosed, if they were recognized as a mystic and supported on that trajectory, they would be a mystic, but that can't happen in isolation. It needs the support of the community recognizing that. Whereas if they're seen as pathological and having some kind of brain disease, they're going to be funneled into that channel. So I'm no longer going to funnel myself through that pathological path. Krishnamurti says in one of his many videos that, what shall I do to affect this society?
and I'm just going to keep talking to myself. And I was thinking about Dr. David Hawkins' scale of consciousness, and he talks about how people at a high level of consciousness balance out a certain number below. Somebody at 600 might balance out 10,000 people, and one person at 700 might balance out 100,000 people. Those numbers aren't right, but just for example, that high energy consciousness, that person has different gestures, has different actions, has a different light coming out of their eyes. And that is what is the powerful thing that balances out the inaction and, and different energies of the lower consciousnesses. And what I was thinking about in terms of mania is somebody goes into those high levels temporarily and temporarily balances out a hundred thousand people. So there's these people popping up into these high states, balancing out a bunch of energy in the lower states of consciousness, and then they go back down to the state of consciousness they were at, or one lower. But these are actually ways that the universe is trying to balance out the lower gestures and lower actions of people in lower states. And those lower states aren't necessarily bad. Sometimes they're necessary based on the conditions of the environment and there's so many factors none of it's wrong it's just what is happening but what I'm saying is people popping into high states balances out that energy and I've talked about how it's a pocket of energy and the person is trying to share it and it makes us do certain actions it makes us act right away it makes us be kind it makes us so many things and it makes us do other things too because we feel like we're always going to feel that good and we're always going to have that energy. But the thing is that energy isn't for us, it's to be shared. So sometimes when we've done all the sharing we can of that energy, we go back down to those lower states. And if a person is at a certain state of consciousness, a low-ish level, those gestures and those actions of higher states are not actually embodied in their physiology and their neurology so they get the high energy that puts them up there they get the blueprint but it's not fully embedded and then the person falls back down but at least they have the blueprint so that's why it's important to do some of those kinds of gestures and connect with altruism of our, of our own will and volition instead of of that will and volition of that energy of consciousness and again people go into mania and fall out of it to the detriment of themselves it's a very dangerous state there's no real self interest in that state and it can get to that point where it seems there is some self interest so mania is about learning to share this energy and consciousness and as we learn how to do it it no longer feels like mania, it just feels like baseline. And Krishnamurti asks if there's an action not dependent on past or future patterns. And to me, that's a state of mania, all time is now, action. And I feel like it can only happen when we are perceiving what's in the moment now. If that's not happening, then we're acting based on a thought pattern. And Krishnamurti often talks about what we are today will be tomorrow unless there's a radical mutation in the mind. And I feel like this mania process is a radical mutation in the mind. 
we're all of a sudden very different. And it's not based on past conditioning and thought patterns. And this energy wants us to mutate in this way. It's a manic mutation. And we're medicating this radical mutation in the mind. And the mind is trying to be moved by the level of consciousness and the perception of consciousness in the moment as opposed to thought and patterns. And it's thought that is afraid of this change. It's afraid of perceiving in this way. Because when we stop thinking in this way, it actually feels like death. So we see thought past or perception extrapolation. And if we see perception extrapolation, we actually have to act, which means we have to change. As an aside, have you ever tried dancing to that elevator music while you're on hold with your credit card company? I did that yesterday and it was kind of fun. So our level of consciousness is what gestures and moves us. I wonder if we can go on perception walks and speak based on what we perceive in the moment. And in terms of roles, what role can we play? If we don't necessarily think it's a good idea to go around saying that we're prophets, can we think of a different role, a level above mental patient that we can play, that we can embody? I feel like when we perceive, we're seeing beyond the sound barrier of the ego. The light is way faster than sound. And so when there's no sound, the light can come in and create sound. Maybe this could be a docu-video blog. Hopefully I can release it when I'm off medication. And I feel like the light coming out of our eyes is usually the past. It's full of past thoughts and memories. And so in this way, we've lost our vision. And I was thinking about Jason Silva when he says that awe is an experience of such perceptual vastness that we literally have to rearrange our mental models in order to integrate it. Replace awe with psychosis and mania and it's exactly the same thing. But we're given the mental model of we're mentally ill. And that's just one mental model through which to frame that experience, but it's probably the most destructive one. So where do we get these mental models and how are they blinding us in the first place? Even the me is just a mental model. And the opposite of awe is blah, as in a blah mood. And why are we so blah? And why do we need awe? And the only time we see a bit of awe is when our mind stops going blah, 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 blah. And again, that's our own voice in our own head preventing awe and asking where it is. And our own voice in our own head has been bought from us and sold back to us, saying things that we'd rather not hear. And this is programming through experiences and media and education. And hopefully when I share these, I'll be speaking as a non-mental patient and maybe I won't have to talk about this stuff at all because I'll have it on video and then I can do something else with my time because I will have invested a lot of time 
sharing this part of my journey to transcend the mental health system so then I don't have to go around talking about it. I can just enjoy having transcended and share the journey to help other people. And I have no idea what's going to happen with it, but awe is a product of our blindness, our sleepwalking. It would be like if we slept for an entire month and then woke up for one minute and that minute of awakeness felt so good because we're always sleeping. And then we're trying to figure out how to wake up to have that amazing experience. And no amount of rearranging the images and dreams would allow us to wake up. And that's sort of what we do by trying to think our way into flow or awe. And our voice is a seed and it only grows by actually vibrating the voice box by using our voice. Our voice is the most powerful instrument we have and mostly we just have it repeating in our head old thoughts and how much time do we actually spend using our voice in a creative way saying something new. And by using our voice in this creative way saying new things we're growing new brain cells but by using our voice against us in our own head, not actually using our voice box, but somehow producing that sound without a voice box, we're scarring our brain. But the vibration of our own voice actually grows new brain cells, especially if we're saying something new and seeing something new. Because if we're saying something new, we're seeing something new. And that integrates the voice with the eyes, that integrates vision with sound. And in that way, the two are in harmony. If we're speaking as that which we perceive, as the moment in the moment, those two faculties are in harmony. When usually our voice sound is in our head without using the actual vibration, it's just the brain cells sort of vibrating and they're vibrating over and over together in the same way which is locking them in which is making it harder for those to dissolve but one of the easiest ways to dissolve those is to actually use one's own voice the actual vibrations in a creative way which is with perception so if we're thinking about the past and 10 years ago yet we're in the present moment our vision, what we're seeing around us, which we're not really seeing because we're blinded by the sound, is out of alignment. So they talk so much about present moment and how to be in the present moment and everything. Just perceiving and speaking as the moment, in the moment, is being in the present moment. Is what I'm saying now congruent with this moment now, with what I'm seeing now? And I was thinking about how prejudice and judgment is actually a hallucination. So if there's another human being in front of me, that's another human being. And if I'm picking out bits and judging and feeling prejudice, the fact is that's a human being. And all those bits that I'm projecting onto them are hallucinations. But the ones that were programmed with they're seen as facts, but they're actually not real. They're hallucinations. And the point is that 
when we hallucinate, we can't extrapolate. When we're projecting, we can't see. We can't see relationships and we can't see relatedness and we can't see sameness. And the labels we've been given and the stories we've been given by the mental health system are sound barriers that we keep ourselves in. This is how we see ourselves and we take on those stories and we turn them into our own voice turned against us again and then we're in a prison of our own sound and we take that story and then we start judging ourselves based on the story that we've been told. I heard the term ubermensch about two years ago and it was something along the lines of designing something where the wealth is restored to the people. That's sort of like a flip of a switch. I can't remember how it was exactly, but I was thinking that this in a way is an ubermensch of perspective and it could be an ubermensch of dialogue or an ubermensch of memes and weems and social capital in a way because if we change the context through which we see and experience ourselves as labeled people and move to something beyond that's going to create something different and really this perception is just seeing outside the field of thoughts and knowledge which is a very limited sphere which is something Krishnamurti talks about but he talks about how there's definitely energy outside that limited sphere of what we know and when we can see beyond that limited sphere we see that other energy beyond the sphere and that is perception because thoughts are sounds and I was thinking about polyphasic sleep and how Steve Pavlina described it how at first when you sleep 20 minutes every three hours for a total of two hours of sleep a day or something at first the body is really really tired but then by day four or five the body says okay I'll do it your way and I feel like with some of these episodes of so-called mania and psychosis it's almost like the equivalent blip of this this 20 minutes of sleep in a way but it's that way in that consciousness in the universe is doing that to some of us to show us the way to be some of the gestures in mania in the higher states of consciousness so when we're in regular consciousness we'll say okay universe I'll do it your way I will be altruistic I'll be kind but then we go on treating it as this mental illness and then trying to avoid symptoms and blah 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 when maybe the best way to avoid symptoms is to do the gestures of the universe of higher consciousness but not having to be in those higher states but by acting that way we will gesture in those higher states being more embodied and invite that energy to come back and then it will just feel like like that's how it's supposed to be because in the height of mania we feel like this is perfect like this is exactly how it's supposed to be so we need to do it the universe's way not the way of our egos and thought you could almost think of map consciousness as poly 
aphasic awakening. It gives this shot of awakening and the shot of awakening and the shot of awakening. And when will we get with that program of what that awakening is trying to show us to wake up to? Just think of it like kids. If a baby can crawl, it hasn't yet perfected the gestures to walk and it, it works on a little bit and a little bit and all of a sudden the energy comes in and they're able to put it all together and walk. It's the same thing with this extra energy that comes in and, and gestures us into different actions. It's trying to show us how to walk in that other way. The first humanoid or human or whatever who walked upright on two feet was probably looked at in strange ways. Like why would somebody want to walk on two feet instead of four legs? Until one of them saw that that freed up the hands to do other things. And then they followed suit. Well, what is this freeing us up to do? And I feel like psychosis relates to that phrase, to die before you die and realize there's no death. And part of one of the things that a person can experience is that one feels like people they know are imposters. I think that's partly because we're detaching and that's part of the ego dying and the personality dying, even temporarily. So we look around, we see these people and we think they're not them because we've actually lost the attachment. And it's seen as fearful because we realize we know these people but they don't seem like the people. But they might not seem like them because who they seem like is our own projection. And we're losing attachment to those projections. So it's part of that ego death process and it's scary. And that's part of what I think about when I'm preparing to leave is imagining if I was in psychosis or in that terrified state right now, how I would feel so detached from everything. And so it's almost like I have to detach from everything and then when I come out of it, I'm okay. And when I leave, I will be okay. In perception, when we're in the moment, the brain expands on everything it sees, it can extrapolate. So it'll read a book and it'll see beyond the book and it'll read between the lines and it'll want to add stuff in. But when we're in this thought ego state, we absorb things and we try to remember and we try to absorb new thought tracks. We try to turn that sentence that we read into something in our own voice to use later. And I thought of another possible name for a project or a company or something and it's alchemical balance wellness and so in psychosis it's death of the personality and we're not that persona so it seems I'm all caught up for the day I feel like I have to mentally prepare it's almost like I have to induce my own psychosis but not really the experience and state of psychosis but just some of the aspects that come into play in that process. The ending of everything. 
I feel like I need to use that experience of psychosis to wipe away thinking about mental illness and going on this journey with a blank slate and not having this mental illness context as the background. I'm at the park and yesterday after my videos I drew this diagram and it's really profound. So this is the wave of consciousness going up to higher levels and then coming back down like somebody with bipolar disposition might do and at this lowest level of say shame somebody's embodying like a homeless person sitting on the street and then as the consciousness goes up at the highest level somebody feels like a prophet and everything in between but the point is as the consciousness goes up the gesture the body position the way one communicates changes so even if somebody's sitting quietly on the street and they're homeless they're still communicating something they're communicating the state of society that allows that to be created. They're communicating suffering, they're communicating so many things even though they're not actually necessarily saying anything. And they could be feeling the situation of the world so strongly that all they can do is sit there. And they would and they might be able to tell us some of the sensitivities that they perceive if we would listen. And then the prophet's doing the same thing, but they're at the higher level where they're able to say things. But then again, people often aren't listened to. So that's my profound diagram of the month. So the energy changes the gestures and the level of consciousness changes the gestures. And normally we have gestures within the very limited sphere of our thought patterns and programs. But when all of a sudden consciousness is what is directing our actions and gestures, we're animated by that consciousness. And it's more situational than based on past patterns. It's more present. It's more in the moment. So when somebody is more connected with that... It could be more important to keep oneself out of certain scenarios because of what can play out from that. So there must be somewhere in between, in between this feeling helpless and homeless and feeling powerful and prophetic. Some way to communicate this and maybe somewhere in between is embodying mania, embodying those highest states while still considering those lower energies and lower states and still considering 
that the people we're communicating with often are perceiving based on thought patterns and they'll be judging us and the way they judge us and the way they see us is actually going to warp our trajectory and it actually warps the level of consciousness of the situation which can change the way we gesture out that path so for example if I feel prophetic and I start spouting off lines people will be looking at me like I'm crazy and will likely funnel me to the psych ward and I have a bit more on this later because I listened to a little intro lecture by Michael Stone the shaman guy this morning and he was talking about a few things that are related to the things that I've been talking about with myself so it's almost like consciousness gesturetics or conscious gesturetics versus ego gesturetics and when it's based on consciousness consciousness is a spectrum it's it's fluid it's not this rigid pattern in the neurology so when we start to act more based on that we might not seem like ourselves to other people or ourselves because the self isn't the programming anymore. That being said, we likely can still access the programming while well, we can a lot of times and and go back into being supposedly our programmed self. And maybe that's what Tom Wooten talks about with bipolar in order. We can still pretend to be our programmed ego self even though we're inside our consciousness is kind of going up and down and all over the place based on what we're actually seeing in the moment or feeling in the moment so these are gestures by consciousness which is to do with perception of the situation and not by thought which are from patterns of the past that keep us consistent as our ego and I was watching an interview of Jason Silva by Tom Bilyeu and I can't remember what Tom Bilyeu called his thing but I might find it here somewhere in my notes and Jason Silva talked about how Ernest Becker said the neurotic cannot create so he chokes on his introversions and I'm pretty sure recently I talked about how we don't know what to do with our perceptions as manics or he calls certain people neurotics which could be related to people that are labeled but really the neurotic or a manic or a labeled person or whatever cannot create well part of it is they can't they don't know what to do with what it is that they see so they see something and they might want to create something because of that perception but they're unable to create so he said whereas an artist will be able to create something and dissipate that energy by creating something so that made me think about what I said in terms of people that are labeled especially when we go into those really extreme states we're perceiving so much but we don't know what to do with it and part of what to do with it could be seeing that it's a blueprint of sorts to somewhat inform life going forward so maybe there's nothing to do with it really when we're in that state because if we try to do something with it when we're in that state if we try to do too much 
it's incongruent with the terrain of reality but it's giving us a blueprint of a different reality that we can gesture into actuality so we have to wait for that blueprint state to pass and then use ourselves as the instrument of creation to move towards that blueprint and I feel that would resolve some of the neuroticism in a way because it's a visionary state we get these visions we get these possibilities we get these dreams we get these motivations and purpose and we feel like we can do something in this world and then we fall out of that state we don't have that feeling but we go back to a state where we have the free will supposedly to do what we want but will we do what we want towards that blueprint which again in my mind it's sort of the test because we don't have that warm fuzzy state anymore but can we get ourselves back into somewhat of a state of being able to create There's an interesting crew of people drinking beer and talking and wearing lots of flannel. So Jason Silva said, Ernest Becker said, that the artist takes it in and reworks it into his art. Well, can we as manics take it in, take in those visions and blueprints and rework it, rework our gestures and our DNA to create that which we saw? And why can't living be an art? So the key would be for neurotics to become artists and psychotics to become artists. So if we're able to rework that energy that we experience, perhaps we become artists. Can we become artists of this manic energy? And they said, see you guys, good game. But based on what they're wearing, I don't know what game they could have been playing. Um, and Jason Silva said something about using his work to prepare the grounds for the future. And I was thinking about, is this my work? Is this my work? And is it preparing the grounds for the future, for that blueprint reality that if we start to gesture towards that, we can actually make actual, actually? And he also mentioned artistic interpretation. and. This could even be my artistic interpretation of that dimension that is often labeled mental illness. And he talked about not dismissing your first person subjectivity. And that's exactly what I'm talking about with not taking on the story of mental illness because we do and then we dismiss our first person subjectivity and what we actually experienced because we just think, well, that was just mental illness. And then we never explore it further. And this is my first person subjective experience and exploring it further. So the stuff I talk about is not objective, it's subjective. 
And Jason also mentioned co-authoring the narrative of your life. And that's what I'm trying to do is co-author the narrative of my life and not have the narrative of pathology writing over the narrative of my life. I'm taking back the narrative of my life and authoring the narrative of my life moving forward. So I like it when these so-called leading edge thinkers are saying the exact things that I'm doing by talking to myself and the way that I see some of my experiences, even though they're called mental illness, other people are talking about the same thing and then calling it something fluffy and fancy and everybody's going ooh la la. And I remember watching a long stream of Jason Silva's videos and everything in there is the same thing as supposed mental illness in terms of so-called psychosis and and hallucinations and delusions. It's all the same continuum. It just depends who a person runs into. If a person runs into somebody who's going to say you're mentally ill and you're psychotic, well, then that person's going to be drugged. But if somebody runs into somebody compassionate or has friends and community or happens upon different interpretations, so again, we're warped by the way other people perceive us. And especially when we're in that sensitive dimension when we don't have these strong ego protective structures keeping us rigid in what it is that we do in our gestures then other people can come along and warp the way that we get molded as consciousness by being a part of the situation and we become one with the situation and I'm not talking about that character from Jersey Shore and Jason Silva also did a video on changing your past by changing the way you speak about it and the narrative of it. And when we think about it differently, we actually change the past. And I feel like through self-dialogue, I'm also changing the past in that I'm changing the interpretation of being a mental patient into something else until that slowly and slowly fades into oblivion and I'm hoping to one day transcend it and then have that as proof that it was never so because these things are supposed to be lifelong and these things are supposed to need medication lifelong and if I can prove that wrong then it's not necessarily true and one of the ways to do that is to change the narrative and not just one narrative but infinite narratives and not being warped into the narratives that are not how I see things. And he talked about how there's pleasure in understanding and I feel that that is slightly incorrect. There's energy in understanding and then after we get that energy, because we understood something, we think, oh wow, that was so nice. And then that turns it into pleasure and then we think, I want that again. And then that turns it into pleasure and something to strive for. But I feel like one can understand moment to moment, every moment, and not have to actually stop and derive pleasure from it. And he also said the phrase stewardship of internal life. And I'm trying to be a steward to my internal life and maybe encourage others to do the same. And he talked about how when he does his videos, the camera gives him permission to 
talk to himself like that, otherwise he would just look like a crazy person if he was talking without a camera. So that could actually be true for people like me who are technically crazy people, to talk to ourselves on the camera and show that we're not crazy. And he talked about how we're wired for the new. Every moment is new. And because we're wired, we can't see that. So there's a slight difference there. And we're seeking the new through our old constructs. And by doing that, we can only see a very small variation on our old constructs, which isn't really new. It's just an extension of the old. And he talked about the hedonic adaptation. How we need new things to get pleasure. But we can only be adapted if we're actually doing something according to a pattern. And by moving around based on patterns and programs, we do, in fact, get adapted. But if we don't at all act on patterns and thoughts and past programs, but actually on perception in the moment, then there's no hedonic adaptation. And one can actually be quite enchanted by the very simple. One can see the beauty and the complexity and the very simple things. Like right now I could think, oh, I've been to this park a million times, it's not interesting. Or I might become enamored by a snowflake. Same place, just different awareness of what's happening around me. And this guy, Tom Bilyeu, he wants to free people from the matrix, from the prison. And I was thinking about how mental illness is actually a path to enlightenment. And it's actually a way that the universe is trying to help us get there. But we think that we need to do something to get there, yet there's a very large population of people that are being pushed towards that, and it's called mental illness, yet there's all these other people trying to do it and forgetting about people who have been labeled with these things who, if they went and talked to them and listened to them, they might actually get a lot farther than what they're trying to do. And the other thing that we don't realize with this whole bit about how some people in psychosis disconnect from being able to control themselves. They can't control themselves. And that could be in a good way or in a not so good way. So if people can disconnect from being able to control themselves, is this mechanism that we have where we can control ourselves real? And what is that control? And who's in control? And is there a point in time where each and every one of us or any one of us could get to that point where we could actually let go of control of our life and just walk and just move and just perceive and never actually feel like we're controlling ourselves again? It feels like people who go into mania actually connect with that. But then there becomes a point where they hit a wall and they have to go back to this feeling like there's somebody in control again. But what if more of us were 
able to master that state where we give up control to the universe and walk that path out together. Instead of having one lone person here and one lone person there, moving in that way, moving as the universe funneling through us. And then they eventually get to this point where they bump up against too much opposition and then eventually are diagnosed or crucified into submission. It's like first we get caught by the universe and moved by the universe and then we get caught by the system of thought and people and their perceptions and their discomfort with somebody who's able to move about in that way. And people projecting their fear upon the one who has surrendered like that is what warps them into moving in ways to adjust to that energy that's coming towards them, which is resistance. And he talked about something related to doing what we're meant to do. And that's sort of that point where we can surrender when we hit that point that we're in alignment with doing what we're meant to do. And we get caught in the web, in the matrix of the universe, as opposed to the matrix of human thought and constructs. We usually move about in that matrix, along those thought tracks that are programmed into us. We're moving around like trolley trains on tracks. And he talked about the singularity, and I've heard him talk about that before, but I never heard him explain what that meant. And he talked about how it's going through a black hole. And then you transcend biology and you're sort of in this heavenly realm of whatever it is that you would want for yourself. And it made me think of the adjacent like body and how it's actually already there with us, that singularity realm. And I think we blip in and out of it. And I wonder if it's on the other side of the sun, if going through the sun is like going through a black hole. Because in my first state of that extreme state, I had these sensations of that's what was actually happening, as opposed to the sensations of just these thoughts in my head that I regularly have. And he also talked about how we're insatiable, wanting machines. I feel like we're programmed to be that, but I don't think that's what we are innately. That's part of the dopamine system that's been hijacked. Because what we want is just based on our thoughts and those are just programs and when we're wanting like that we're not seeing and when we're not seeing we're not understanding and when we're not understanding we're wanting I feel like we're meant to be understanding instruments integrators not just wanters and being a mental patient is one of the most impotent roles one can play in this entire world in this entire first world at least maybe second just to being a prisoner and that's why through self-dialogue I'm trying to translate this label unfold it into so much more than that and to have these perspectives and perceptions take their proper place because there's already so much research calling it so many other things yet for some reason it hasn't really been associated with the different states of consciousness that one goes through in a so-called psychotic 
process and I just don't understand that. It's going to actually take all the people who are researching flow and peak states and enlightenment and meditation and mindfulness, all those people have to go into psychosis and then actually feel experientially that that process that's labeled pathology is directly related to all the things that they're researching and purporting to be so valuable. So then why are people that go into these states spontaneously undervalued and medicated? One day I feel this will be self-evident. And if there's enough of this kind of context around, if a person is in so-called normal consciousness and starts to go into something that seems like psychosis, they'll understand what's happening. And they'll be able to go through it instead of going to the psych ward and having their life ruined. And this process of psychosis is a decentering process. We have the center of processing, which is our ego processor, and all of a sudden we're in this quantum processor of the universe and possibilities, and we see possibilities everywhere instead of seeing past ego structures. As soon as we don't see the past, we see the possibilities right in front of us. And sometimes in that state, I feel like it is a superposition and I don't know which way to go and then that's when it gets confusing but perhaps if there are more people in those states we would be able to unfold that together and actually understand which way to go because maybe it's actually a state that we need more of us walking out together because we each have different capacities of which part of the puzzle or each a piece of the puzzle and and that consciousness is like a puzzle, it's a mystery, it's magic, and we need more pieces of the puzzle in that consciousness in order for it to arise and become evident what that consciousness is trying to create, what that level of consciousness, and perhaps that level of consciousness needs more bodies through which to filter this consciousness, seeing the same thing at the same time. And then the possibilities become probabilities. The more of us that see and act in this way together. Can these states of consciousness be a form of art? And we need more psychological safety for people who are decoupling from their egocentric psychology and integrating into a cosmological ecology or Gaiac consciousness. I remember years ago when I would read stuff I would write down what people say but now I write down what I see from what people say and that's almost like a conversation even having a conversation with that which I read or hear a talk online so the equivalent of what I used to do is so that would be like meeting up with a friend and them saying to me oh you need to do XYZ in order to grow and I would say back to them oh I need to do X Y and Z in order to grow and that would be the extent of conversation is just saying the same thing back and when we make notes on what somebody says that's the equivalent of what we're doing we're not actually having a conversation with that which we are engaged with even if it's just a book and if we write something down that the person said without 
also writing down something that we see from what they said. We're just trying to put that into memory and make it a pattern. And that means we're not actually engaging our brain. We're not actually learning and understanding. Because by writing something down of what I see based on what somebody said, it's showing that I perhaps understand what they said. And that stimulates brain growth and that stimulates understanding, which is energy. The other day I was in my car and it started to fog up from my breathing. And I remember thinking how it's almost like how our own voice in our own head, always talking, fogs up our brain cells. If you can imagine, there's a little mouth inside each brain cell and it's always talking then there's fog on the walls of the brain cell. And if it's foggy, then the brain can't actually see. So even just being in my car for the last while and talking, it's starting to fog up and it becomes harder to see out the windows. And so by talking in our head all the time, we're fogging up our brains. And then I got an email from Jamie Wheel from Flow Genome Project and him and Stephen Kotler have written a new book. Something about fire. I can't remember the title. But with a pre-order then there might be some weekly Facebook sessions with them or something. So I pre-ordered it because I'm curious about what they have to say. And I kind of want to ask them about this whole supposed mental illness side of things. But they're saying they're recruiting pyromaniacs and that's sort of their little term they're using. And, and again, they're using maniac in a positive light. And I was thinking about how it, I was calling it shamania at one point. And it's almost like I'm a shamaniac or at least a she-maniac. And in his email, he mentioned that there's a $4 trillion revolution where people are spending money and time searching for new and novel ways to hack our consciousness, enter flow, and change the world. And I feel like with map consciousness and trans consciousness, we don't hack flow. We are thrown into flow. And we don't have to do anything to get there. So again, there's this gap between people that don't have to do anything to get there and would prefer not to go there. And people who are trying so hard to get there. And I just don't understand why there's probably $4 trillion being spent medicating people who go there. Who don't want to go there. And then the other half are spending $4 trillion to try to get there. It just blows my mind. I feel like if more effort was spent helping people who go there to stabilize in that, then that would change the energy of the world such that that world be would become more manifest for other people to get to go there too. There's a war on this type of consciousness on one end, and then they're selling it to people on the other end. And a person doesn't have to spend a single dollar the universe can put us into flow. 
and usually it happens when we let go. So no amount of striving and trying is going to get us there. It only gets us there in as much as we try so hard that we eventually give up. And that's the thing with trauma and suffering that some people just give up. And then that's when this element of consciousness comes in in order to save that person's life. And I listened to the talk by Michael Stone and he talks about heart and meaning. He was talking about in the context of work. But I feel like heart and meaning need to be restored in the context of mental illness because it's just seen as a meaningless mental illness and that there's something wrong with people. And I feel it actually connects a person with their heart and meaning and they see the world's meaningless, drives them crazy, and then they're called mentally ill. And Michael Stone also talked about reauthoring the story of your life. And I would also say it's about reauthoring perception, giving different voice to perception, and then we're always able to say new things. And then why does one need a story? When we see meaning everywhere, every when, every moment, we don't ask what the meaning of life is. And that can only happen with clear perception. And clear perception can only happen by always dropping perceptions once they arise in consciousness. Because the tendency can be when one starts to have a couple of clear perceptions, one can really try to hold tightly to them because they feel so true and rich and meaningful. One might hold tightly to one and, and spend a lot of time actually on that story. But when one can actually surrender those perceptions, one sees that that never ends. And the thing with this seeing is it doesn't take practice. Because we have eyes. We can see. So all this stuff about practice this and practice that, there's no meaning. Because the one who practices creates a pattern. And any pattern we create causes a form of tunnel vision or blindness. And Michael Stone talked about three blind spots. And I was thinking to myself, Get rid of the word three and get rid of the word spot and you just have blind and that kind of sums it up. I don't think we have blind spots, I think we're mostly blind and we have a spot of perception that isn't perception at all. And he was talking about the myth of separation and I feel like in mania we have a state of oneness and that's why we act, we have to act because we're not separate. So. Whether we're separate or not is indicated by our actions and our gestures. So the universe knows by way of our gestures whether we're one or whether we're separate. And that's again, everything is recorded in the field of the universe and affects everything else. And he said, we need to transform our speaking and listening to change how others see us. 
and he was talking about this community listening field thing. And he's talking about that in terms of his work, but I feel that is so pertinent for people that are called mental patients is we need to transform our speaking and listening to change how others see us. And he also said, use the power of the blow. So in martial arts, they use the power of the attack to neutralize the attack and to move. And I need to think about that one more. And he also said, transform the way the community sees, hears, and holds you. And people who go into these states need to be held differently. They need to be seen differently. They need to be heard differently. And that's part of bringing ECPR here is they're going to be held and be held differently. And that's all the stuff I was talking about recently with the light coming out of one's eyes and how one is looked at is what changes them. And he talked about when we're shunned or when monkeys are shunned at a young age, they display aberrant and antisocial behavior. And I feel like part of what happens in map consciousness is when we go from ego consciousness to map consciousness, we are kind of shunned from the collective consensus world. And that, when it lasts long enough, can produce this aberrant and antisocial behavior sometimes, especially when one is moving back towards that dissonant field of thought and reality that we used to be a part of. But I feel like if more of us were there together, we wouldn't necessarily be isolated and, and have the gestures move towards those more antisocial bits. We almost need to move back towards being antisocial in order to reintegrate into the society in order for them to kind of take us back because they can't take us back as enlightened people because they don't see us that way and they don't understand it. So that interpretation is one of the only ways we can actually reconnect with the field of reality. So again, watch what people in flow are wishing for because if you flow too far, you might have to come back as a mental patient. And I also feel like the universe is trying to shun us and shunt us into the universe in order for us to live a totally different way. But when we can't stay there, when we can't remain in that energy and continue to act and live in that way, we need to react in a way that will get society to sort of reconnect us with it. But it's done in a very rude way. And he talked about a story field, but I feel like we could live in a perception field instead of a field of all these stories. We could be living in a field of perception, of vision, of seeing and acting on that instead of talking about stories. And he talked about a course he's going to be doing, coaching people, and he talked about a transformational project where you need the help of other people in order to do it. And I was thinking that this whole map consciousness, this whole trans consciousness, this whole energy of the universe is a transformational project of the universe. We need to work together. We can't do it by ourselves. We're all a different piece of the puzzle. And he shared a powerful story that is again illustrating exactly what I was talking about the other day. And I find it fascinating how I unfold these concepts related to my experience and what I see and, and 
mental health and being labeled and and how it's not really that and then a few days later whatever it is I'm exploring for the day and I don't really intake that much information of other people but whatever it is it's always exactly what I was talking about and he shared the story of how how he had a troubled past and he got into a lot of trouble but then years later 10 20 years later or something he had studied with all these high-level people and he'd gotten to this really great place in his life and then he ended up meeting up with an old friend from the past and going to this party of sorts and he realized he was all of a sudden feeling like having a drink or having sex or so many of these things that he no longer participated in and he said something very profound he said that he realized that he was relating to a field of people that know him as something other than he knows himself as. So he said, I'm relating to a field of people that know me as something other than I know myself. And he said, that's the power of the community field. And that's exactly what I'm talking about with this putting ourselves in the eyes of pathologizing people. Deep down inside, we know that that's not the truth about us. It's not the entire truth. It's a very small fraction of the truth, or it's none of the truth. So this is saying that he was in a room of people who saw him as something else. They saw him as a different person because they knew him years ago. And those perceptions were being projected onto him, and that was changing his pattern of behavior or at least his thoughts of how he wanted to behave and that's exactly what happens with putting oneself in front of a psychiatrist for example we could be feeling good but then we have to go play the role of mental patient and then that's gonna warp that trajectory it's something other than we know ourselves but the trouble is a lot of times we actually believe that and we start to actually believe that's what's true of ourselves and it's so dangerous so if this guy would have thought this is who I am because I'm feeling like I want to drink and all that and then gone down that path but he realized it was the perceptions of other people and the energy of other people projecting things on him so that's the power of the community field so in a way it would be amazing to be able to level up the community listening field of people that are labeled so we can listen to something else than this crappy story about mental illness. And then we can see ourselves in different ways and we can see ourselves in different ways together. And it also is related to acting altruistic because that will change the perceptions of us as people because we connected with our altruism, but then we're medicated back to egocentrism. So the community field of mental illness needs to be changed and I've definitely changed my own community listening field and I've talked about how I feel that has helped me so I really am feeling now that it's so important to not put myself in that view and if I don't at all maybe those perceptions and I won't be warped in that way by other people's perceptions and maybe that will dry up. Bye bye for now.
I'm still at the park and it's getting dark. And I edited my video and I saw a couple things that I wanted to talk about just to add to the second video. And one of the things was related to how I was talking about wanting and how wanting is based on thought and thought is based on programming. So when we want like that, that wanting something in particular is getting in the way of seeing the infinity of what is there in front of us and being able to be choicelessly aware of it and be drawn to something each moment. So by wanting in a particular way, we're not being drawn. We're not drawing. We're not drawing with our eyes and, and always creating a new picture because we're wanting this something in particular. And when we can't see in this way of constantly drawing and seeing relationships and and extrapolating, we're not understanding. And when we're not understanding, it's not just that's when we want, it's when we're not understanding, we don't have that energy because energy is from understanding and seeing and perception, which is light causing the image sound of perception. And when we have our wanting sounds in the way we can't see, so we don't have the energy. And when we don't have that energy, then we want pleasure which is a substitute for that energy. And so we're just addicted to what we want. And that is very machine-like. And I was also thinking about what Jason Silva talked about with changing the past and how if we reframe our story, we change the past. And I was actually thinking about how in my first experience of map consciousness, of trans consciousness, of that magic and mystery I felt it was very spiritual and magical and mysterious and then I got to the psych ward and they told me that I had a mental illness and then that is supposed to write over what happened. So my label, my diagnosis did change the past. It changed the past from something vast and expansive and, and completely awe-inspiring even though there was a lot of pain at the end into this trajectory of mental illness. So it transformed the immeasurable and the wonder into this storyline of a chemical imbalance. And the chemical imbalance is to maintain the status quo. So the chemical imbalance of one's individual brain is a way to explain away something so vast that could change society and it keeps the current balance of the status quo. So it changes infinity into mental illness and it changes the past. And so I'm gonna rewrite over that past again and go back to the vast. And again, the infinity of that light and of that dimension is all condensed into this sound, these memes, these stories of mental illness which are just sound and believing those sounds warps our vision so we can't see 
that vastness as that again because we'll always be interpreting it in terms of this new past that we've been given which is that was all mental illness so now all that vastness that happened is all evidence to further inform what to look out for next time because it's mental illness so it it rewrites over the past and uses that past against us in the future instead of using that as a springboard into the blueprint of the visions that we saw and experienced and the vastness of what it means to be human so we have this experience and it changes us but then we get turned into a mental patient which changes us again we need to change back we need to take our subjective experience back and take it future and make it future and allow us to have that trajectory again and ability to unfold that vision and have that vision and not be made mentally ill by it and not become labeled because of it it's just sensitivity of perception and I was also thinking about how each of us is an ego and we are moving about in our patterned ways. We go to work, we come home, and we take this street and people take that street. And it's all this perfectly orchestrated dance of egoic consciousness and people doing what they need to do to survive and moving up the ladder and etc. etc. And then if somebody, through the volition of the universe, gets access to trans consciousness or map consciousness now all of a sudden they're not moving in that way and they're actually disrupting this ego orchestra and so when that ego orchestra gets disrupted egos as part of the orchestra get alerted and they're like who is this disrupting the orchestra and and so they have this other holding pattern for those people through medication and all that stuff that happens to put them there so then this other orchestra can continue because the other person's going here and there and they're totally disrupting this ego orchestra that is vastly out of tune but nobody can hear that. And I'm wondering if this journey of some randomness is sort of like putting possibility in front of me and if it increases the probability of synchronizing, which is synchronizing perception, it's sort of like fishing for synchronicity. And the art of gathering consciousness. I've been thinking about decoupling from this dialogue with myself about mental health. And I might have started to talk about this yesterday, but I don't even remember. And I was thinking about how in my early 20s I had some kind of chronic fatigue-like thing. And it was quite debilitating. And it took me about five years to heal from that. And most of the five years I was really struggling. 
And when I was in that, I spent all my time researching what might help and thinking about it. And when I'd meet new people, I'd tell them that that's what I was dealing with. And it just consumed my whole life. And then once I got better, it wasn't long after that, that it didn't even enter my mind to even talk about it or bring it up. It just wasn't something that was part of the context of my life anymore. And I'm wondering if that'll be true with mental health. And so part of it would be decoupling from this conversation I'm having with myself about it. And that might actually be one of the ways that I'm able to distance myself from it. And I don't know if that's completely true because I'm still taking the medication and I do want to try to taper off of it when I get back. So I won't be completely detached from it. But since I'm going into unknown territory with unknown people, meeting unknown people, I don't necessarily have to bring that up as part of the conversation. So this is sort of like saying goodbye to talking about it like this all the time. Because if I continue to immerse myself in it, I could talk about it for the rest of my life, I'm sure. And maybe I will come back to talking about it, and maybe I will continue to talk about it, but I'm just wondering if this is an opportunity to start a new conversation with myself. Just like how when I healed from chronic fatigue, I never thought about it anymore. And I'm not necessarily completely healed, but I'm thinking since I'm going on a journey that is kind of a pristine environment, if it will be kind of like Mad Park for myself, and I talked about the Rat Park study, and what would it be like to have a Mad Park study where people that were having mental health struggles went somewhere pristine, kind of ideal conditions with no stress, and if people would heal because of that or partly because of that. And it came to me that I'm sort of doing that study with myself. How will I feel in a pristine environment with less stress of not working in mental health and not thinking about it so much? And at the same time, it feels odd, like that huge part of my life won't be part of my life and I need to prepare myself for that in a way. And Hopefully part of the conversation will be talking about consciousness and perception, but not referring that to mental illness as I already see it as something beyond mental illness, but I've been talking about it with reference to mental illness and mental health. But can I just speak from those inner human dimensions and be those inner human dimensions instead of referring back to 
these categories of pathology that write over these inner human dimensions when they're not supported to unfold. And I won't be in the lens of people pathologizing me, whether doctors, clinicians, other people in the mental health system, even colleagues, maybe. And that might unfold a different version of me than the one that I'm used to being in reference to all of this mental health context. And it's a different community listening field, like Michael Stone talks about. And part of it would be to have this dialogue with myself in this new way without reference to mental health to the point where when I come back, I don't feel like I need to reference myself to mental health anymore at all. And all that will be left to do is come off the medication and if I can be successful with that, then that's awesome. And maybe I won't be, but part of what might help me be successful is talking to myself in self-dialogue and with others, integrating all the stuff I've talked to myself about, but negating the reference to mental illness. And some of it can be thought of as spiritual emergence. And I haven't really talked that much about that term, even though that's the most common one besides related to psychosis, that's an alternative to thinking about it in terms of psychosis. They overlap, they're not completely the same, according to some people. But I've just gone on my own conversation and dialogue about it, about so many other dimensions of it that, again, for me, it's felt really spiritual in the beginning, but now it doesn't feel that spiritual per se. I feel maybe it's possible that the more integrated it becomes, it doesn't necessarily feel spiritual, which is something other than daily life. And if it's just about perception moment to moment, then maybe there is no conceptualization of spiritual. It's the initial burst away from the egocentric consciousness that feel spiritual because it's not of the nature of the ego. So part of it could actually be, if somebody wants to call it psychosis or spiritual emergency or whatever, it's almost like normalizing the spiritual emergency, normalizing those extreme feelings, not just making it normal in terms of part of what the mainstream sees as acceptable, but normal as in normal in our own neurology to the point where we become adapted to it so we don't have to feel like we're going to have these extremes. If all of our energy is trapped in the neurology of our ego and it's a very limited stream of our neurology, when that breaks open and we have access to the rest of our neurology, at first we feel so free and spiritual, but when the energy actually redistributes, we just become that, and it's not really any different than daily life. And when we get used to that, 
we no longer feel like, wow, that felt spiritual or this feels spiritual. We get used to it. I had a deja vu, like I've already talked about this and I have no idea. So I'm wondering what it would be like to speak as just a human being, just fully human, not a human being who identifies with this label. Because a lot of what I've talked about is about not identifying with the label, but I'm quite identified with that dialogue and that conversation. So it's still an identification. And it's a conversation that I'm having with myself without a motive per se, but there's still intention behind it. And that intention is still strengthening the identification with not wanting to identify. So part of this journey will be surrendering that conversation and surrendering that non-motivation to talk about something in particular. When I first got connected with this energy six years ago, before I was labeled, I was speaking differently. I wasn't speaking as my ego self. I was very much in the moment and it was an experience all of itself. And I feel like that same sort of energy is speaking now, but it's speaking about the fact that I was labeled after connecting with that energy. Now, if I go back to the place in time and in space or in consciousness, which all time is now, and reconnect with that voice that I had before I was labeled, as if I was never labeled, how would I speak and what would I still be talking about? I ended up talking about mental health because that's the stream that the energy was funneled along and it was a very important journey for sure. And maybe I'll continue to talk about mental health, but I'm just wondering if If consciousness can go back or go forward or go to that space where it's speaking as consciousness, not about this diversion of the energy along the track of mental illness. And many of us get diverted along that track and maybe never escape it. And in seeing that it's something beyond that, for sure, can consciousness speak as that which is beyond the label that is trying to keep it contained? So it's one thing to see beyond and speak beyond, but look back at the label and talk about it, which is still limited. So this journey will be an opportunity to perceive something else 
something to do with perceiving nature. the sensitivity of perception doesn't want to just talk about mental health because before the sensitivity of perception was labeled it didn't know anything about that and it was speaking a different language than even the language of a peer or peering at this phenomenon of being pathologized so this label story is sort of dehumanizing and it's still there, that energy is still there. But if that was just gone and it was just this consciousness as human eyes without the dehumanizing, what would it see and what would it say? I'm curious. So if perception wanted to see in that way it was seeing before it was labeled, what was it seeing and what did it want to say? I do remember one thing I said before was we're killing each other with our thoughts, feelings, and actions. Just as I say that, I see that I need to drop that, as that was just a momentary perception. And I wonder, how do I want to be seen? It'll be a different listening community. And oddly enough, seen was my nickname from my mom growing up. I'd call her C and she'd call me seen. So how do I want to be seen sort of has a bigger significance. And I say it realizing that I am affected by the perceptions of others and I refuse to allow perceptions of pathology to be a part of my life and how can I be seen my possibility changes when I change the scenery I need to prepare my consciousness for a life without mental illness, without that paradigm. Can my brain cells be cleared of the background of this trajectory of mental illness? And it's not like I would change anything in my journey. I'm just wondering if it's possible not to carry that forward on the next leg. I'm very identified with disidentifying from mental illness. And can I surrender that? And this is my dream. I've been dreaming of going back to California in this way for six years since I was there. And when I left, that energy, the change in morphogenetic field, 
was enough of a shock, an inner earthquake. And I have two more days after this one to get packed up and and leave. So I'm not sure how many more videos I'll make. I don't know if this will be the last one or what'll happen, but in my videos to myself along the way, I haven't really mentioned the people in my life out of respect for people's privacy, I've hopefully not shared any personal details except for my own. But I am very grateful for the people I have in my life and many of them have come into my life through this journey of so-called mental illness. And through the journey, I've, I've seen so much of what is mental health. And a lot of that was brought to me through this paradigm. And I've also seen what isn't helpful and can lead to more distress. Really, relationships heal. And part of this self-dialogue is healing the relationship with myself, healing my own brain. But I wouldn't have gotten this far without so many great people in my life. And I'm so grateful. And there's such a big part of me that wants to be able to do something give back it's hard to explain I just there's some people in my life that have just helped me so much just by the fact that they're such amazing people and not really trying to do much but doing so much by just being there and being who they are and so in terms of the whole mirror neuron things, I've had so many amazing people mirror their greatness to me. And I don't think I would have gotten through this without that and without them. I just really hope this journey takes me to the next level that I need to be at. To be able to be there for others. There's just a number of people in my life that I feel like I would just do anything for. Without question, without hesitating.
relationships really do heal. And I guess that's what I'll miss the most, is my relationships. I won't miss my stuff. And I just hope that I can be the person that I can be. To make, just to make the time and energy and heart that people have given to me, their investment worthwhile, I guess. It's hard to explain. have a community of friends, peers, acquaintances, people that work in the system that and I'm so grateful for the people who have made it fun along the way. And I was thinking about the community listening field in the video I made with myself when this all first started six years ago with the flies. And they stayed and listened to me. And after they listened to me, it was, it was difficult to have people listen after being that connected with nature. So this could be the beginning of a new portion of self-dialogue. Thank you for listening to Bipolar Inquiry. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember, use your voice, craft your consciousness, embody your potential, enter a quantum paradigm. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information in this show is not medical advice. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.